Welcome to the Doctor-Patient Forum, a no-holds-barred patient advocacy podcast discussing why millions of pain patients continue to suffer, but most importantly, who caused the suffering. Join us weekly as we discuss how you can help end the untreated pain crisis. This is the fourth in our series of Narcs Care PDMP, and I just wanted to give a shout out to Carrie Judy. She is my partner in crime with researching, especially about the PDMP and Narcs Care. So none of this information would be available to us without Carrie's help. Hey, everybody. Thanks for taking time out of your day for tuning into this podcast of the Doctor Patient Forum. I am Claudia Mirandi, and joining me is my co-host, Bev Sheckman. Don't forget, folks, if you like what you hear today, you can check out all of our podcasts, follow us on Spotify, head to our website, thedoctorpatientforum.com, and there is a link specifically for podcasts. So there's been a lot of discussion, especially on TikTok, about Narc's Care and the PDMP, which is great because a few years ago when I first, you know, joined the TikTok platform, there wasn't a whole lot of discussion about the PDMP and what it is and how it affects pain patients and has it really helped with the overdosing epidemic. We are fortunate enough to have somebody who specializes in researching the PDMP he is a policy analyst at Reason Foundation. His work primarily focuses on healthcare policy, specializing in prescription and illegal drug regulations. Welcome to the show, Jacob Rich. Thank you so much for having me. So, Jacob, tell our listeners a little bit about where you work, what you do, and your involvement in this whole area of the Prescription Data Monitor Program. So I got my start when I was working for Jeffrey Myron at the Cato Institute. Jeffrey Myron is an economist at Harvard, but he's, he, at that time he was also the director of economic studies at Cato. So from there, I ended up moving to Reason to basically start my own research. And at Reason, I was an analyst, but I decided that I kind of wanted to increase my education in the spread of disease. So I applied and got into the PhD program at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, where I have a full-time appointmentship as an economist at the Cleveland Clinic. So basically, long story short, I study what leads to mortality, how this, these types of mortality spread. Okay. The Reason Foundation, is this a libertarian organization? Yes, it definitely is a free market libertarian think tank. Yeah, I love that. You know, the libertarian community was one of the first communities to come out and support the pain patient movement which was, I wasn't even familiar with the term libertarian when I first got into this arena. So we are going to discuss the PDMP. What is the PDMP? Long story short, the PDMP is an electronic database that allows law enforcement and other regulators, maybe medical licensing boards, to review the prescriptions that doctors give and patients receive. And the idea is that if there is over-prescribing or inappropriate prescribing, that can be located, such as sending letters to doctors, maybe prosecuting doctors, possibly prosecuting patients. And the effects of these PDMPs have been that opioid prescribing has gone down. And we're actually at one of the lowest rates of opioid prescribing in the last 20 years. But amid unprecedented death across the entire country, it's not clear that these programs are actually working. So for, the, for our followers, if I go to the pharmacy to get a medication filled, the pharmacist has to 
list this medication on the prescription data monitor program? Yes, every state's a little bit different. So whether the pharmacist has to do it, whether the doctor has to do it, it, it depends state by state. But if you are getting a controlled substance, all states have actually implemented prescription drug monitoring programs. Missouri was the last state to do it in 2020. So there is some sort of record of the prescriptions that you received that at minimum can be reviewed by the Drug Enforcement Administration without a warrant. (laughs) This is so fucking crazy. Oh my God, I never thought I'd be. This is so (laughs) awful. So you get a medication filled, you get a medication filled, and now in some states, if they think your doctor is over-prescribing, they can use that prescription data monitor program to initiate an investigation and terrorize a well-intentioned physician. Sort of. You, you said in some states. It's every single state. Okay. <laughs> and all 50 states. All 50 states and D.C. And from what I hear, PDMP is going nowhere because of the money that's been invested in creating these databases. And some people, you know, I've got a very good friend who is a high person. She really likes the PDMP. She said, well, I can see if people are getting medications filled from other doctors. And I said, well, with the PDMP, this was supposed to be created to help the overdosing epidemic. But from where I'm sitting, people are overdosing at alarming rate. Jacob, has the PDMP helped or harmed the overdosing epidemic? In general, it has harmed the overdosing epidemic. But the interesting thing about how it has harmed the overdosing epidemic is that it was actually very effective in its initial goal. So the overall goal, the overall goal is basically to reduce deaths across the country. And they thought that by reducing prescribing and locating people who were abusing, quote, abusing prescriptions, however you want to define that, by locating those individuals and cutting them off from their drugs, they may be able to reduce the amount of opioids that they are consuming. However, by effectively identifying these individuals who they thought were inappropriately consuming prescription-grade opioids, those individuals still had a demand for opioids, and they substituted to the black market. And black market drugs are disproportionately more dangerous to consume than prescription drugs. So basically, all the PDMPs did was take people who are prescribing prescription-grade opioids and put them into the black market where they are consuming fentanyl instead. And that's why overdose rates have basically quadrupled over the last 20 years at minimum. If you listen to our podcast from last week with Jennifer Oliva, you heard portions of other presentations and interviews that I was able to find. We have them linked in their entirety in the show notes. I will also be including some of those today as well. Let's hear what attorney Kate Nicholson has to say about PDMP harms. And there are genuine risks that in the current environment, they create barriers to care for people with real medical needs. Some of the specific concerns include a chilling effect on the willingness of prescribers to prescribe or of patients to seek treatment because both know they're being watched. Patient abandonment, a breakdown of trust in the doctor-patient relationship, increased stigmatization, and palpable harm when people are denied medication abruptly that they are physically dependent on, um, which is very dangerous. The FDA recently issued a warning about this, that it can cause medical and psychological destabilization, suicide, and resort to illegal substances. Despite the data on their efficacy being characterized as mixed and inconclusive, they have proliferated recently. They are now in all 50 states and many U.S. territories. 
you know, I was talking with an anesthesiologist about this the other day, and he said, you know, in his mind, he believes that less exposure equals less addiction. I've got an 87-year-old mom who had a horrible accident, and my mom never took pain medication, so she was really never exposed to it. And the anesthesiologist said, well, and this is probably why your mom and other people in their 80s never became addicted because they were never exposed. So I think all of these doctors have so many different viewpoints. And, And we were discussing the PDMP. He said the PDMP, in his opinion, is there only to target doctors. Because whenever he writes a script, he receives a hateful, intimidating email back from the health department saying, oh, we noticed that you're prescribing an opioid to a person who also takes a benzodiazepine. And the government is now intimately involved in what is happening between a doctor and a patient. I'm going to take a few minutes here and play some more clips from some other episodes of different podcasts and presentations because I think it's really important for us to explore this question on whether PDMP really was there to help doctors or to target doctors. First, I'm going to play some clips from a podcast by NASCA, National Association of State Controlled Substances Authorities, and they have a series of podcasts where they discuss all things related to the prescription drug monitoring program. So this first one is uh, the host, who I believe is from Pennsylvania, and he is interviewing the executive director from the Ohio PDMP. My name is Steve Sherholt. I am the executive director of the Ohio Board of Pharmacy. I've held that position for uh, a little over five and a half years. I am not a pharmacist. And in fact, my background through the military and, and county and state agencies is, is law enforcement. Most recently, I was the assistant superintendent of the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation. I've also served as stint as a white-collar crime prosecutor in, in our state capital uh, Franklin County, Ohio. In Ohio, our Board of Pharmacy, uh, we have an authorized strength of about 98. A large number of that number are investigative. We have administrative authority, but also criminal investigative authority. Let me add to that, too, because I've been doing drug diversion investigations for a long time. I've been a narcotics agent for a long time. Even back when I was doing drug diversion work as a drug diversion agent investigating cases, I was using the ORS system, your system in Ohio. And, you know, Pennsylvania was always behind. So it took us years to catch up. I and mean, we've had a PDMP for a long time here. Only law enforcement was allowed to see it for decades. It wasn't until 2014 that physicians and pharmacists were allowed to have access to it. You know, you you said a moment ago that your system originated as as simply a law enforcement tool. And I I think in large part, that's probably how Ohio started. And make no mistake about it, we use it as a law enforcement tool every day. We, our ORS administrator has gotten to the point where I, I think he can lock himself in his room, look at the data, and identify aberrant prescribers that are engaged in criminal conduct. And he's right. It's amazing to see that work. He just said that the ORS administrator, which ORS is the PDMP from Ohio, can lock himself in a room, look at a computer, and find aberrant prescribers, which he's basically saying that they could see just from the PDMP if a doctor is violating the Controlled Substance Act. That right there is the whole problem, and I'm going to tell you why. The PDMP leaves no room for context. If your doctor retires, 
and you find a new doctor, it goes down as you having two prescribers. If your pharmacy is out of medication and you have to go to another pharmacy, that goes down as you having two pharmacies. Say you had a car accident. You go into the hospital and you get admitted, right? Say you have surgery. The surgeon gives you a prescription. You get it filled at the hospital. They just give it for a few days, right? And then you follow up with your primary care provider and they give you another prescription. And then say you have to go to an orthopedic surgeon who has to set your leg. Then they give you another prescription. And all of that goes down as multiple prescribers, no room for context. And every single one of those doctors could very well be flagged because he just said, He could lock himself in a room, look at the computer and see who is violated or who are aberrant prescribers. And he said, and he's always right. It's amazing. This is the entire problem with this PDMP metrics data analytic nonsense. In some states, at least, the PDMP was established as a law enforcement tool. I'm going to take a few more minutes here to play some clips from another podcast about ARPO. ARPO is Appalachian Region Prescription Opioid Task Force. So this task force was started, I believe, 2018 under Jeff Sessions. And this was created to really target doctors. They used an existing format of like a Medicare fraud unit, and they combined it with the PDMP using data analytics, similar to what we've discussed with Narc's Care. And they just use it to target doctors based on different metrics. This particular podcast is from a podcast series called Cover Two Resources. It's a series about addiction. As always, when we play portions from other podcasts, we will link them in their entirety in the show notes. The genesis of ARPO was back in 2017, the FDA, the DEA, HHS, state AG offices, Medicaid fraud units, the Bureau of Workmen's Comp, State Board of Pharmacy, and State Medical Boards all began to collaborate to target illegal prescribing and distribution of opioids from the medical profession. But also a core model was the use of data analytics. In in infancy, in a very rudimentary way, using data analytics in 2007, but then using it more in a more sophisticated way for the last 10 years, identifying those worst actors or worst schemes in the healthcare fraud system, targeting those schemes and those individuals with data analytics as a jumping off point and then using traditional law enforcement techniques. So the idea would be to prosecute those individuals, the worst actors, generally medical professionals, owners and operators, using a model of focused resources and data analytics to target them, investigate, and then prosecute and convict them and remove them from the system from harming patients or defrauding the public. At its core, though, was focused resources and data analytics. And then using the data analytics and prosecuting corrupt doctors who are legally prescribing opioids. We began to pilot then, develop a deployment plan for how we would then apply these analytics and this model of prosecution in the Appalachian region. The fraud section begins outreach with our partners at HHS, DEA, and FBI, traditional law enforcement partners with the Medicare Fraud Strike Force. We began outreach in um, in quick succession, meeting directly in the field with the 10 U.S. attorney's offices involved in ARPO, explaining the model and the use of data analytics and how we believed we could be force multipliers in that district, targeting the worst prescribers in in their districts. 
the data model. This relies very heavily on analytics. Can you dig into that a little bit and share with us what that really means? Sure. You know, I certainly can't go into all the algorithms and all the specifics about the data analytics, but we had become sophisticated in our use of data analytics within the fraud section. And in Medicaid, at that time, Medicare and Medicaid claims data, for example, seeing which doctors billed for over 24 hours a day, which doctors were prescribing in the healthcare time sector, every patient had the same services they needed. No one ever got better. So what we did was develop different red flags that could be applied to the opioid illegal prescription context using data of CMS data, which is Medicare data, prescription drug monitoring data from the, the local states, publicly available CDC data, and analyzing those individuals and those prescribers that were prescribing outside the normal course of medical practice. So that's how we began to analyze the data and cut the data and come up with different red flags to say, who are the worst outliers? I want to make sure you caught something there. First of all, they said they used data analytics for this program. If you haven't listened to our first two episode podcasts on this Narcs Care PDMP series, please go back and listen to part one. We interviewed a Dr. Neil who explained what data analytics was and how it was used in healthcare. But I also want to make sure you caught something else. They said one thing they programmed into these algorithms is if a doctor was prescribing the same prescription to a patient repeatedly and the patient never got better. Now, I don't know about you, but my illness doesn't go away. Many of us are considered palliative care patients, which means we need symptom management because we have illnesses that will never really get better. But to our government and the DEA and the feds and the FBI and all of these in ARPO, they look at that as a red flag. And then they go on to talk about how they programmed in other red flags. And this is why you see doctors are afraid to prescribe. Now, why am I taking so much time to talk about the PDMP, Narcs Care, data analytics, and all of that? Well, I've thought for a very long time that the reason why patients are being abandoned, the reason why patients are being forced tapered is because of the PDMP and their metrics with data analytics and different algorithms, because doctors are afraid. In the last episode, we played portions of Kate Nicholson and Maya and Jeffrey Singer and Jen all say the same thing. Doctors are afraid. They're afraid to be targeted and they have a right to be afraid. You know, when we first started researching this years ago, I really blamed doctors. I did. I was like, why can't they just understand that we're not doing anything wrong? But I got to tell you, I don't blame them anymore because if I were a doctor, I don't think I would be willing to prescribe because there's all these red flags that law enforcement have come up with. The DEA has come up with. We had an episode early on in our podcast about red flags, and we discussed this, that the the first one we found was from the DEA originally. So they create these red flags, and then it's programmed into these proprietary algorithms, so no one knows exactly what's in them, and then they go after doctors, and so doctors are afraid. So we've already discussed Narc's care. Now we're talking about ARPO. OIG is part of ARPO, and we have seen the OIG toolkit, which is a similar algorithm to NARC's care from what we can tell, but it's used to target doctors 
and not patience. And I will link that in the show notes also. I'm not positive if that's exactly what ARPO uses, but it's something similar if it's not the one they use. Within your first few months of operation, the strike force brought charges against 60 individuals, including 53 medical professionals, involving about 350,000 prescriptions for 32 million pills to 24,000 patients. Early on, the strike force had a great deal of success with convictions. Assistant Attorney General Brian Benchkowski said medical professionals who violate their solemn oaths and peddle opioids for profit should know that we will find you and ensure that the justice system treats you like the drug dealer you are. Once those cases started to be brought to the light around the country, you saw the sentences start moving up. That has a massive deterrent effect in those districts. So we knew that we could have an impact. These prosecutions will have a deterrent effect on other individuals. They may stop and say, listen, I'm not prescribing anymore. And and for whatever reason, they stop doing that. That's a good thing. Part of the model is the data analytics coupled with dedicated agents, as well as experienced prosecutors handling data and also understanding how to how to investigate and prosecute those medical professionals that are committing crimes. That inherent expertise allows the prosecutors and allows through this model to move faster and faster. The goal was to stop the illegal prescriptions as fast as possible. People are overdosing, people are dying, people are becoming hooked on drugs, you're impacting community, stop the pills from going out fast, and to do it as fast as possible. The idea was not to have a one to two year investigation on a doctor, the quickest way we can we can meet our burden of proof, charge an individual and prosecute that individual. And the goal is to get these people from stopping to prescribe. So they actually admit here that part of their plan with ARPO was to scare other doctors into stopping prescribing to their patients. And they seem to be bragging a bit about the first few months that they were doing this, that it affected 24,000 patients. That's a lot of patients in just a few months. Think about how many it's been now in how many years. And plus, ARPO's expanded. It just expanded to New England, to NEPO or NEPO, however they pronounce it. And they just arrested their first doctor. So there is no telling how many patients this has affected. So you wonder, when they planned this program, did they think about what would happen to these patients? Well, in this podcast, they say yes. Listen to them describe a program that they seem quite proud of that they say has been working so well in this program. I think the other part of ARPO that was we spent a lot of time on was 60 individuals all in the same day in April and involved 10, you know, several thousand patients, drug-addicted patients. We asked ourselves early on, what would be the impact of community if you took the pill mill out, but you had the patients still drug-seeking patients moving around the area? And that causes great concern, and it caused the Assistant Attorney General and the U.S. Attorney's concern about these patients that would show up at the pill mill that day looking for their pill, the prescription for the pills, but have nowhere to go. And so we spent a lot of time planning with our partners, FBI, HHS, the CDC, and and principally state and local partners, health agencies at the local level, making sure that we had health professionals on site at each medical location for which the doctor had been arrested that morning to make sure that there was continued access of care for those patients. They were directed to legitimate doctors that could help them or they were then or they were then shifted to or treated that day. CDC was instrumental in having on site scattered throughout mobile units that could treat patients the event of overdoses or potential overdoses. And I think that was part of a success story that we were very proud of too, continuing the access of care and doing 
what we did on law enforcement side on a responsible way, understand that many of these patients would need help that day. And I think that was something we were very proud of. That's impressive. What they are talking about is something called the opioid rapid response program. For those of you who have been following us and reading our website and information might know that I contacted them a year ago. And then again, this past March, I didn't have such a great experience with them. I will link the information in the show notes where you can read in more detail what happened. And we're hoping to have an episode in and of itself about the opioid rapid response program. And what they've been telling to legislators for years was a fully functioning program. But we can't find any evidence that it's ever done anything except for maybe offer Suboxone treatment to anyone who was dependent on opioids for pain or for addiction reasons. And it's really strange because it's a program of CDC and OIG and DEA, but for some reason, we don't have access to their annual reports. And even though they're supposed to measure patient outcome, I was told that they can't because they don't have access to these records. So they have access to the records to target the doctors, but once the doctors are targeted, man, HIPAA just goes into full effect and they don't have access anymore. So this brings me to the question of HIPAA. We briefly touched on it last week when Jennifer gave us the quick answer about whether HIPAA rights protect us from PDMP data being shared. But let's hear what Jacob has to say about it. Unfortunately, it's probably not because HIPAA has a lot of loopholes. And when Oregon and Utah saw what was happening, that the Drug Enforcement Administration was indiscriminately seizing data and reviewing it without a warrant, in both cases, between both states, the federal courts concluded, quote, patients and prescribers have no expectation of privacy in a market as highly regulated as pharmaceuticals. So, because of the, you know, HIPAA is not a very like straightforward law. It's a very complicated law with thousands and thousands of pages. There is some sort of loophole such that governments can basically violate privacy if there's some sort of, quote, government gain or government interest in doing so. And with enough lawyers, you can figure out how to operate that. So there's really no way to use HIPAA to defend yourself if you see that people or the government is reviewing your prescribing history and sending you letters. Okay. Yeah, that's probably the most asked question I receive on TikTok. Is the PDMP a violation of HIPAA? So Jacob, how did you get interested in the PDMP? That's a great question. So when I was finishing my master's degree at Eastern Michigan University, I was teaching statistics classes and I had a really good student and she presented a, an analysis on the relationship between seasonal affective disorder. And she showed that murders and seasonal affective disorder were highly correlated. And it was a really good project. But on a whim, she showed that states that had seasonal affective disorder were also higher in the suicide rates. And I looked at the ranking of states and something really clicked in my head. And I asked the class, I said, hey, does anyone notice a common pattern between these states that actually have higher suicide rates? And I realized that the states with the highest suicide rates happened to have the lowest population densities. And it was literally a one-to-one relationship. So Wyoming and Alaska had the lowest population density. Then it was like Montana, then Idaho. And then the states with the lowest suicide rates happened to be New York, which basically everyone lives in New York City, and New Jersey, where 
everyone, which is actually the most dense state in the entire country. So from there, I started studying suicide and analyzing uh, the relationship between population density and suicide with various economics tools. And then I ran into Jeffrey Myron, who I told you I worked for at Cato, and he looked at my research and said, hey, I'm, I'm analyzing the opioid crisis with the exact same methods you're using to look at suicide. Would you like to work for me? And I said, okay, that sounds like a great, great gig. And then he told me to download the prescribing data that the DEA publishes and to download also the mortality data that the CDC publishes. And without giving me any sort of uh, description of these data, he just told me to compare them and tell him what I see. And basically what I saw was that when prescribing went down, deaths went up. And once I saw that and saw that the entire literature had never confronted this in the medical literature, I decided to study it further. And I'm basically five years into it now. And it's been a great time. Okay. So you have been studying this for the past five years and it, because the CDC published the guidelines in 2016. Yes. The past five years has been very, very difficult for our followers, for our listeners. Uh, these poor people, they've been left with street drug suicide and the PDMP plays a huge role in the untreated pain crisis. So yeah. I want to talk with you about, uh, you know, law enforcement having access to the PDMP. Do we know if law enforcement has access in all 50 states or is it just a few states? Well, federal law enforcement has access in every state. So the Drug Enforcement Administration has automatic access to these electronic records. At the state level, it depends state by state. So I, I don't I haven't memorized which states allow their local and state level law enforcement. Now you will hear Dr. Jeffrey Singer introduce an ACLU lawyer who discusses this in a bit more detail. And you will hear him throughout this podcast episode. Our next speaker will be Nathan Fried Wessler. He's a staff attorney at the ACLU Speech Privacy and Technology Project, where he focuses on litigation and advocacy, and advocacy around surveillance and privacy issues, including use of surveillance surveillance technologies. Nate also litigated several cases involving Fourth Amendment protections for sensitive prescription records in state PDMPs. The angle on this issue that I look at and I think about are protections against unjustified law enforcement access. As with all the issues I work on around digital age surveillance issues, I'm concerned with what are the appropriate limits that need to be placed before police officers or other law enforcement agents can get access to this repository of highly sensitive medical information. You heard Jacob talk about how even if states require warrants, the DEA federally still has access. Here, uh, this ACLU lawyer discussed this also. Now, states, as a matter of state statutes, deal with this question of how easy or difficult it should be for law enforcement to get these records in very different ways. A number of states, like Utah did in 2013, just allow police officers to have their own logins, and they just have to self-certify that they're doing something within the scope of their duties as a police officer, and they can run their own queries. There's another set of states that, that require the agency that runs the PDMP to run the query themselves, but they'll do it any time a police officer asks. Other states require a subpoena, which is still not a great protection. It's essentially a piece of paper that the police fill out and send over, self-certifying that the information they're looking for is relevant to an investigation, which is a very low standard under the law. There's a small set of states like New York and Pennsylvania and some others that require a court order, but on a low legal standard, relevance or reasonable suspicion. And then there are about a dozen or so states that as a matter of state law require police to go to a judge, demonstrate probable cause and get a search warrant or a similar court order. 
before being allowed to access patient records, sort of the, the gold standard protection. That's the protection that the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution talks about, uh, getting a warrant based on probable cause before police are really allowed to access our most private spaces or our most private information. And that warrant protection, it turns out, really makes a difference in cutting out the fishing expeditions and the unjustified requests by police and forcing them to focus just on the investigations where they really have evidence. So the, the work that I've been involved in in this area is looking at what the Fourth Amendment says, regardless of what the state law protections are, what the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution says about law enforcement access to this data. And this has arisen in a, a number of states in litigation that we've been involved in, including in states that actually have a warrant requirement as a matter of state law. And that's because the DEA, that as a federal agency, the DEA takes the position that they can access this data and force the state to comply with the issuance of just an administrative subpoena. But as I noted earlier, a subpoena is just a piece of paper sent by the law enforcement agency where they self-certify that they are seeking information relevant to a law enforcement investigation. In several of these states that have been receiving these subpoenas after implementing state law warrant requirements, the states have pushed back and said, we can't comply with the subpoena. This would force us to violate our own state law. This isn't a warrant. That happened first in Oregon, uh, then in a case in Utah, where I represented individual people in those states to intervene in the case to vindicate their own privacy rights alongside the state. You've heard Jacob and this ACLU lawyer, Nathan, discuss this in detail now about how it doesn't seem to be that difficult to access this PDMP data federally by the DEA. And even in states where warrants are required, it seems like there's an easy way for them to get around this. Well, now I want you to hear Dr. Rawat, the CMO of Bamboo Health, when she was asked this question by Jen on the show 1A that Maya and I were on when we were discussing NARC's care. Um, in half of the states that we work with, uh, you must have an active investigation to be able to access the underlying prescription drug monitoring program data. And, and that's the state-owned data and, and program, uh, not the use scores within the NARSCARE care application. In the other half of the states, uh, one needs to have a court order or a subpoena to be able to access the underlying uh, prescription drug monitoring program data. And is that in a case against a doctor or a patient? You know, I, I, I'm assuming both, but uh, Jen, I, I don't know the, the exact answer to that question. I, I'm assuming generally. Dr. Rawat definitely paints a little bit of a different picture than Jacob and Nathan. And I also find it really interesting that Dr. Rawat was asked, is this information when accessed by law enforcement used against patients or doctors or both? And she doesn't even know the answer to the question. If there is some sort of suspicion, the medical boards or whoever else has access to these databases, they can alert law enforcement. And because of the third party doctrine, there's really no barrier between other government agencies contacting law enforcement and them having access to these records immediately. Can you explain the third party doctrine? Because I think that's something that people ask about but don't fully understand. And I don't know how to explain it that well. Yeah, it's every case is evaluated uniquely. But in general, courts tend to side with police when it comes to the third party doctrine. So basically, the idea is that you have privacy from the government, but you don't have privacy from a third party supplying the government with information. So if you have a phone conversation with someone who's doing criminal activity, the phone company is allowed to forward your phone conversation 
to the authorities. And even though the authorities didn't have a warrant, a third party forwarded to them. So they didn't actually need a warrant. It gets a little trickier when you're dealing with government agencies, but sometimes licensing boards aren't even considered government per se. The government gives them the power to license, but, you know, organizations such as the American Medical Association, I'm not sure if the AMA itself specifically has access to these data, but licensing boards do. And the licensing board might not technically be the government. So that actually means that it's a third party and it could indiscriminately forward your records to the government. And if both agencies happen to be government, it's a little bit more complicated. But again, courts tend to rule on the side of doctors and patients having no expectation of privacy in such a regulated market. Jacob, when you said if there's suspicion, then they can, that in some states or whatever law enforcement can access it. Does that mean if there's suspicion of the doctor with their prescribing or like in North Carolina, law enforcement has access. So does that mean if say someone's driving and they think it's erratically, can law enforcement just pull up the PDMP because they have suspicion of the patient? If that state allows the law enforcement to have access to the data? Yes, oh definitely. See, that's what I've, and I've said that, and I've had such pushback from other doctors telling me there's no way that that's true. Oh, no, it's definitely true. You know, every state's completely different, like I keep repeating. Right. But sometimes doctors, especially at the beginning when these programs were first pushed out, they would actually look at which doctors were on average prescribing the most. And they didn't even asterisk each doctor by their practice. So like a surgeon who gives opioids maybe after every procedure was receiving letters versus a pediatrician who may never give opioids, if that makes any sort of sense. So the law enforcement's ability to even determine what is appropriate and what is suspicious is quite debatable. And I'd say that that's actually been what's leading to the biggest problems is law enforcement thinking that it understands what patients need and what various doctors do, and then targeting doctors without understanding that they might actually be dispersing in a very, a very appropriate amount of opioids because of the types of patients they treat. So a police officer with a four-year degree in criminal justice, a DEA agent with a four-year degree in criminal justice, if they have that. If they have make, that, yeah. If they have that, is now making pretty much medical decisions. I'm not exactly sure who is actually sitting in front of the computer. That very well could be the case. I mean, there definitely is no regulation that would prevent that. So so we just heard Jacob explain the third party doctrine. And I want to play some quotes from the ACLU lawyer, Nathan, also explaining what this means. The government's uh, federal government's arguments in both of those cases uh, was primarily that uh, this doctrine called the third party doctrine governed and meant that no warrant was required. This is a legal principle that stems from some some Supreme Court cases of the 1970s that supposes that once people have shared private information with a so-called third party, meaning a company they do business with or some other entity, they're considered to have lost all of their Fourth Amendment protections. They've given up their reasonable expectation of privacy in that data by sharing it. Uh, and therefore, if police go to the quote-unquote third party, in this case, the state PDMP, uh, without a warrant, that person can't complain because it's no longer their data. It's held by someone else. So the DEA's argument in these cases has been, well, you told your doctor what your ailment was, so that's your first disclosure. Then you quote unquote, disclosed your prescription slip to the pharmacist. That's your second disclosure. Now the pharmacist, as mandated by state law, has reported it to the secure state database. So you've now three times over disclosed this information. You've given up your privacy interest in it. 
We fought that logic, uh, arguing that under the Fourth Amendment, there should be greater protections because of the sensitivity of this data, uh, and won in uh, district court in Oregon, lost in district court in Utah. And then a few years after those cases, uh, we successfully litigated a case in the U.S. Supreme Court, but a different kind of data held by third parties, cell phone location information, where the court put really critical limits on this third-party doctrine and explained that that can't be the rule in the digital age. Some kinds of new forms of sensitive digital data just require new protections and a warrant. And so we're now in involved in litigation in New Hampshire, arising out of the same situation. New Hampshire has a warrant requirement, DEA sending subpoenas. New Hampshire is trying to, to protect its residents' privacy rights and resisting those subpoenas, saying get a warrant instead. And we have gotten involved saying this third-party doctrine can apply here. And now we have this new precedent from the Supreme Court saying that we have to actually look at the sensitivity of that information, look at whether it truly was voluntarily shared or not. And in a case like this, where we have information that is necessarily created, you can't avoid going to your doctor if you have an urgent chronic medical condition. And that is so highly sensitive. This is you know, the, the core of medical confidentiality. In that situation, at least when you have this huge statewide database that makes this information super easily available to law enforcement, unless there are legal protections, the warrant requirement of the Fourth Amendment must apply. And we hope that the judges will share the intuition of, I think, most people in this country, that when it comes to medical records, you know, a slip of paper self-issued by a law enforcement agency just isn't an adequate protection. Jacob, I know Beverly was enamored by your study, your PDMP study. And I know we have a lot of physicians who are listening to this. So tell us about the study that you have conducted. I know I have posted it on my Facebook page, the Doctor Patient Forum, many, many times. Sure. So the study that we conducted was a policy analysis of what happens when prescription drug monitoring programs are instituted or implemented at the state level. And it seems to be the case that in the vast majority of states, the opioid crisis in those states did not begin until those programs went into effect, if you define the opioid crisis as a crisis of death. Now, various states had various issues with addiction. For the most part, addiction in states has been stable for the last 20 years. But there are some exceptions like Oklahoma and West Virginia. But overall, what we've found is that when these policies go into effect, the opioid overdose rate goes up at a very high rate. And it's almost all caused by the increase in deaths attributed to heroin. Sorry, the sound cut out again. But what Jacob was saying is that the vast majority of the deaths were attributed to heroin and illicit fentanyl. They declared an opioid epidemic in our country. They declared a prescription opioid epidemic in our country before there really was one, is what it seems to be. And then they caused it. Basically. So what they did is they conflated an increase in prescribing with an increase in addiction. But if you look at the addiction rates, or at least the non-medical use of prescription opioids that is measured by the federal government, if you look at those data from about 2002 to now, you'll realize that they're actually very stable. And if anything, the non-medical use of opioids, of prescription opioids, has been decreasing since about 2015. So there really wasn't an issue of additional people using opioids. I think they could have made the case that among drug users, the increase in prescribing led to more opioid use among people who were already using drugs. But there really wasn't an increase in overall drug use. And there was very little effect on overall addiction from the increase in prescribing that was happening. They just assumed that 
this increase in prescribing was bad in and of itself without looking at any other secondary outcome. Yeah, they always cite, I never know how to pronounce his name, Dr. Leonard Paluzzi or Palauzi from CDC. I think in 2006, he put out this study in a graph and like Andrew Kaladny cites that showing that with the increase of prescribing was increase of death. And, you know, they always say that's absolute proof of causation. But yet how you were talking about before that, when prescribing went down, deaths went up, they always say there's no correlation. There's no, there's nothing with that, that that's not causation at all. So I don't understand why they get to say that with one and not the other. I, I'm not exactly sure what the motivation of these officials are. It's It's been very interesting because <laughs> when you look at, I'm sorry, like, Thir- I know 38 billion reasons. Yeah. It's, it's multi-district litigation. We used to say the same thing. We were like, what is the end game? Why are they doing this? And then all of a sudden, it's this litigation narrative. And yeah, our country's gotten 38 billion. And then that's just multi-district litigation. That's not what they get from the individual doctors. And then people like Kaladni and Lemke and Valentine are serial expert witnesses making millions. So I, I kind of think they that, are. Yeah, I think that's a big part of their motivation, along with some other profiting like Bamboo Health and companies like Pacera, because everyone now gets to say, I'm going to promote my product by saying it's opioid eliminating or opioid sparing. And it's it's really insane. Yeah. What's been happening, especially in my hometown, I grew up in Lake County and I'm going to school in Cleveland, which is in Cuyahoga County right next to it. But Lake County and Trumbull County, which are all in Northeast Ohio, they were just granted hundreds of millions of dollars from pharmaceutical companies due to the opioid litigation. And that's, yeah, there's obviously a lot of money for court cases at the moment. I'm just thinking like these officials, they they published that study in 2006. Were they anticipating that by 2022, they would be making millions and millions of dollars if they were successful? Yes, I I definitely think that they were. I definitely think that that was the whole purpose of the CDC guidelines. The same players were were talking about this prescription crisis in 2008, even. That's just my opinion. I mean, we can't prove it, but that's that's definitely my opinion. I don't know if you have an answer, but is there anything that we can do to... So I work on legislation, And whenever I go before a lawmaker, I have to explain that overdoses are soaring while opioid prescribing is at the lowest. And then a a lawmaker will usually tell me how helpful the PDMP has been. But the PDMP is harmful. I don't I don't foresee the PDMP leaving our universe, at least as long as I'm on planet Earth. What can we do about the PDMP harms? I think you can limit access to the state level law enforcement by putting an amendment on the PDMP legislation that requires a warrant for not only law enforcement to access the PDMP, but for medical regulators, such as medical boards, licensing boards, to access the PDMP. Limiting the state level access to those databases, I think would go a long way. But the unfortunate thing is, is that these are electronic databases. And as federal courts have concluded, the DEA has unfettered access to them. So as long as they exist, there is going to be real-time surveillance at some level of these PDMPs. We might be able to reduce the number of eyes looking at the PDMPs, and you might be able to reduce 
other states from looking at PDMPs because states are actually coordinating and sharing PDMP data with each other, which means you might actually have state-level law enforcement in another state reviewing your state's prescribing history if they have such a data-sharing agreement. So trying to limit anyone who's not federally, who's not a federal agent from looking at at the prescribing history is something you can do. But unfortunately, there's nothing you can do about the federal oversight. The only way to remove it is to destroy the PDMP, to defund them, and to eliminate them. And I don't know if there's any politician who has that type of appetite. Yeah, that's that's a challenge. I'm in the smallest state. I'm in Rhode Island. I would love to have somebody like you testify in support of removing this this PDMP because it's only harmed people. But the indoctrination is so thick. There's so many people who just believe opioids are bad and law enforcement should be involved. But I think that's very scary to know that. And I think there was an ACLU, uh, I think the ACLU intervened on, on this issue in the past, Bev. So the ACLU, where they got involved, if I'm remembering this correctly, it was some opioids went missing on a like a um, an ambulance. And I guess while they were investigating, they pulled the all the paramedics that had worked on that ambulance, they pulled their PDMP records. Yeah, making that connection is ridiculous. Next, you'll hear Nathan, the ACLU lawyer, describe this case that we were just discussing. So in 2013, uh, in Utah, a, a few paramedics working discovered that a few morphine vials in ambulances had been tampered with. They reported this to the supervisors, who then reported it to the local police. Police did a normal investigation. They interviewed paramedics and others who had access to those ambulances, couldn't figure out who might have done it. So the investigation was more or less at a dead end when one enterprising local police officer decided to use his access privileges to the Utah Controlled Substance Database, it's the name of the PDMP in Utah, to log in. Now, at that time in 2013, any law enforcement agent in the state could get their own login credentials. Log right in, check a little box, uh, click a a box that said, this is part of my authority uh, or part of my activities as a law enforcement officer, then run any query they wanted. So this officer uh, decided to download the complete prescription histories of all 480 firefighters, paramedics, administrative professionals, supervisors in this fire district, and sort through them to see whether any of their controlled substance prescribing histories suggested that maybe they were the ones who'd taken the morphine. He didn't see anything that suggested a suspect in the crime under investigation, but decided not to stop there and to see whether he could find anything else interesting or incriminating in the prescription histories of those 480 people. And he ended up focusing in on two men, Ryan Pyle, uh, he's a firefighter and paramedic, and Marlon Jones, who was an assistant fire chief, who had uh, gotten different prescriptions for narcotic painkillers from different prescribers. This is the multiple prescriber situation. This police officer, without any particular medical training or training in these kind of controlled substances, investigations decided that looked suspicious. He thought they were malingerers uh, who were fraudulently obtaining uh, opioid prescriptions. So he referred it to a local prosecutor who took a look at the case and declined to prosecute. Then he found a a state prosecutor in the state AG's office who would take the case. Uh, They filed charges uh, against uh, both of these men. There was a a drawn-out series of pretrial hearings uh, stretching well over a year during which uh, both of these guys' names were all over the local press as drug addicts and as disgraces to their department. They both had to go out on paid leave. It was totally mortifying for them. Mr. Pyle and his wife were in the process of adopting a second child. Uh, The adoption almost went off the rails because he was now accused of a felony. Eventually, 
the prosecutor dropped the uh, charges against both of them, uh, again, after mo more than a year, after it became clear, what should have been clear at the, the start, that these were completely reasonable and medically necessary prescriptions. Uh, for one of them, he had a prescription from one doctor to treat a motorcycle injury and another doctor uh, to treat a bone infection following a dental procedure. For the other firefighter, there was an on-the-job back injury, double knee replacements that a, another surgeon had done, uh, and he had gout that a, a third prescriber had been treating. All the prescribers knew what the other ones had done. Everything was above board. But this police officer, because he had such easy access, decided he should take action, which resulted in, uh, in a really terrible set of events for, for these men. I really want to talk about the uh, your study again, because this study, this is why I reached out to you, because I'm obsessed with your study, because you don't really hear of a lot of people talking about the harms of the PDMP at all, actually, very few people. I just want to ask you, like, as far as the harms go, do you think there's any way to get that information to lawmakers? Like, do you think there's anything we should do, something we can write up to explain to them about the harms? Or do you think that they're just not even going to care at this point? No, I think there is an effective narrative to target policymakers. And I actually came up with this narrative last February. So Keith Humphreys and a plethora of other opioid researchers released a study in The Lancet discussing the opioid crisis in North America. Now, as much as I like Keith, I really think the study is flawed and the suggestions are going to further exacerbate the opioid crisis. But when this study came out, me and Robert Capodilupo, who is my co-author on the reason study that you're discussing, we wrote a- It got cut off, but what Jacob said was they wrote a letter to the editor. And I didn't realize that this was happening until I started looking at the data as I was writing the letter. But when these policies go into effect, when these PDMPs go into effect, the rate of increase of opioid mortality among white people actually is stable. But there was actually no opioid crisis in either the black or Hispanic communities until these programs went into effect. If you look at my, my study at Reason, I show how the policy goes into effect. I center all the death rates in the country at implementation. I show that these policies are followed by death immediately after. But if you actually stratify those death rates by race, you'll see that Hispanic and Black death rates were stable, just completely flat until the PDMPs went into effect. And then after the PDMPs went into effect, they skyrocketed. It's, it's the craziest plot that I've ever made. Wow. And I think because, because after the George Floyd, Floyd incident, people are much more conscious of disparities, which yeah. is wonderful because we need to address these disparities. And I think if we point at the disparities that the opioid crisis is causing, like we've been talking this entire time, it's law enforcement who are involved. Well, which communities tend to be harmed the most by law enforcement? That's right. It's the, it's the marginalized communities. And it's absolutely no coincidence that the recent increase in opioid-related mortality is disproportionately caused by marginalized communities. I have not actually published these data yet. I was very mad because The Lancet rejected my letter. And this month, The Lancet just published a collection of letters criticizing their article. But all of the criticisms that they published were the softest criticisms yeah. I have ever read. I was like, oh, you don't actually, you, you want to give the guise of listening to other people, but you're not going to actually publish something right. that 
is challenging the foundation sure. of your movement. Yeah, yeah definitely. You have a lot of respect for Keith Humphreys. Like, I don't tend to necessarily hold that same opinion. That Lancet article was ridiculous. It's like they were writing about 20 years ago as though it's happening today. Every single one of their solutions was the same thing that, you know, they recommended in, in 2010. And they just they, want to double down. That's, yeah, that's, that's what they're doing. That's exactly right. They just want to double down and they use the same people like Lemke and Jerling and it's like all the same voices all the time and nothing ever is going to change at all. And that what you said about race, it's, that's so interesting to me about law enforcement and the market because we've been talking a lot about narcs care. I don't know. Do you know a whole lot about Narc's Care? I'm not familiar at all. Okay, so Narc's Care is actually from Bamboo Health. Bamboo is, is the ones who have most of the PDMP platforms. They're the ones who do the interconnect between the states, worked right into the PDMP. And what's interesting is they use criminal justice data in their algorithm. We don't know how they use it, but they, they definitely use it. And so because there's racism, in the criminal justice system right away that's going to punish marginalized people already. And and so we were talking to Jen Oliva last week about Narc's care and these risk scores and how they're just targeting people who are already targeted. And it's horrible. It's awful. I actually had no idea that was happening. Do you happen to have the dates on when these Narc's care approaches are implemented at the yeah. state level? Well, it's hard because they don't give you a lot of information. We did, we just did two, three podcasts on it because I've been obsessed with getting rid of Narc's care, at least regulating it, because no one regulates it, Jacob. No one regulates it. At all. The only way to find out which states use it and when is based on Bamboo Health's own press releases. So each state, like North Carolina, they implemented it in 2018. Not every state uses it. I think now maybe 40 of them do, though. It's really, really bad because now law enforcement has access to it. And so if a doctor prescribes to someone with a high risk score, then law enforcement can target the doctor because Bamboo Health also uses risk scores against the doctors themselves for writing a prescription to someone who's has a high score. And because there's so many errors in the PDMP and in criminal justice data, and they said there's 80 data, 80 data points that go into this algorithm that they won't tell anybody what it is. So who even knows what else goes into there? We do think that they use, if anyone has like a sexual assault history or a domestic violence history, if you're a victim, because they, they think that you have a higher risk of addiction. We know that's been worked into other risk scores. So we feel like that's probably in there. But I could send you the information if you want to tell me what states you're interested in. Yeah, we'll definitely talk offline about this. Yeah. And I'm interested in all of the states because what I want to do is correlate when these policies went into effect and whether that had any effect on the black overdose rate. Maybe the indiscriminate targeting of black individuals started when these policies were put into effect at the state level. Interesting. I never thought of it like that. Yeah, that would be so fascinating to look at. I have a hypothesis that it's probably true. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but it's probably yeah. with opioid mortality in the black, po black population until the last like five to seven years. It's actually very, very new. Yep. So this is actually pointing directly at 
how these populations might be targeted. So, no, thank you so much for telling me about that. Yeah, I'm excited to send it to you. And you've heard Andrew Kalani, right, how he says racism plays a protective role with the Black population because since they don't get as many opioids, then that's why they weren't dying. And he thought that was a good thing. Well, guess what? 2020 was the first year in American history that the Black opioid overdose rate was higher than the white opioid overdose rate. I think you're right. Like, may actually be the cause because they do use criminal justice data. And that could be why, because Bamboo Health also owns 80% of criminal justice data. Because another platform they have is, is when a prisoner is released, they're supposed to notify the victim so they know that they're getting out. So they already own 80% of the criminal justice data. So they just use it. They just work it right in there, but they don't have to tell anybody how they do. Yeah. No, thank you so much for telling me about that. Yeah, Andrew Kolodny, you know, we talk about incentives and what's motivating people to make certain decisions. I always try to stay away from accusing people being paid off or doing what they're doing because of money. Because although it might be true, I don't really need to go there. I already have the facts on my side. So what they implemented has had unintended consequences that has made the entire situation worse. Quick fun fact, Andrew Kolodny is the only person in the world who blocks me on Twitter. (laughs) 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 So I mean, like, I don't know if you guys see my Twitter, but it's, it's pretty tame. (laughs) And I interact with lots of people. I interact with lots of people who I disagree with, but he is the only one in the entire world who finds it a little dangerous to communicate. I organized a protest outside of Brandeis and I was calling him, come on out, meet the people. And he wouldn't come out. You know, Andrew Kolodny, Jane Valentine, Anna Lemke, Jerlink, and now what's that nitwit's name? Don Stater. These people are the driving force behind the untreated pain crisis in America. And none of these people do this out of the goodness of their heart. They don't speak out against opioids because they're saving the world. They do so because it comes with many dollar signs. Yeah, Dr. Andrew Kolodny said, you know, he insinuates that racism is a good thing and women are having C-sections and they're being sent home with Tylenol. I think that these marginalized communities, they just don't have the access to certain resources and they're getting medications off the street because they're desperate for pain relief. Yeah, they have to. Like, Jacob, the other part I wanted to tell you in Narc's Care is one of the biggest data points they use is how you pay so if you pay cash if you don't use insurance that jacks up your score now if you don't qualify for medicaid and you can't afford other insurance if you're in that gray area you have to pay cash but that automatically jacks up your score and then the other thing is distance to prescribers so if you live in a a rural area and it's getting harder and harder to find doctors in your area i think it's 25 miles in city and 40 miles not in the city, you're going to get, you're going to have a higher risk score and so is your doctor. And they have something called super utilizer. So if you use the system a lot, then you automatically have a higher score. And so it's definitely targeting marginalized people. So I am so fascinated by, by what that I'm so interested to look into that or for you to look into it. I do want to ask, like, I want to, so this is our fourth podcast on Narc's Care or PDMP. I want to leave people with some hope though. Like you had mentioned one way what people can send to their legislators. Maybe I want to talk to you more about that, maybe to give some more concrete ideas of what we can do. Do you, do you have any hope that 
it'll be either better regulated or anything like that, like not cause as many harms in the future or not really. I do actually have some hope. The American Medical Association has very recently come out and said that the current approaches to the opioid crisis have been a failure. And they have gone as far as to make a timeline and saying what their positions were when various interventions came out. I know in the, in the document that came out this year, I forget what the name of it is. It's like the 2022 like, opioid crisis report from the American Medical Association, something like that. They, they say that in 2016, they opposed the prescribing guidelines from the CDC. And they go through the entire history and show how they were opposing all of these disastrous interventions. I think the narrative that they are constructing is a little bit more favorable than the truth. I think the AMA was actually complicit in many of the regulations that went forward in the first place. But, you know, I don't care. They're on our side now. They are publishing research that shows that these policies are followed by increases in death. They published a paper in JAMA Network Open by Lee et al., I think back in 20, that showed that every single policy intervention that reduced prescribing not only led to more opioid overdoses, but increased the entire drug overdose mortality rate. And the idea is that maybe there's fewer prescription opioid overdoses, but there's an increase in black market opioid overdoses. And that increase in black market opioid overdoses was much higher than any gain that was received from these interventions. So the reason why this is good is because the most important medical lobbying group, the AMA, the American Medical Association, seems to understand that these approaches have been disastrous and hope Hopefully we can team with them to move forward because they want to protect their doctors as well. It's their doctors that they help license that are being discriminated against by law enforcement. So I think there's a great opportunity for patients and doctors to team up to hopefully reduce the crisis in some sort of way. Yeah, they have. They've definitely delivered. I think it's a little bit of a watered down version. The AMA could have been more stern. And Andrew Kolodny's response to the AMA is, well, what's his response? His, his, he always has the same response. That's because they're funded by opioid manufacturers. That's That's industry because, funding. Yeah. yeah, they're industry funded. Yeah, I'd like to see the AMA be a little more stern in their delivery. Whenever we sit down with lawmakers, we always, that's a first point, is the AMA has been supportive of the pain community. The AMA recognizes that the CDC guidelines have only worsened the overdosing epidemic. Not treating pain with opioids, in fact, has been an abject failure in the United States of America. And now our Canadian friends are suffering. Our Australian friends are suffering. If you're listening, Australia, I hear you. I see you. I know what you're going through. Bev, you have follow-up questions for Jacob? Are you going to do any more studies? You, you said you're working on other aspects of it. Yeah. So remember when you discussed that study that came out in 2006 yes. that was in discussing like the increase in opioid death and the in increase in opioid prescribing. Yes. Well, I decided to look at the data on drug use between 1990 and 2014. And I looked at opioid use, started thinking about what sort of cultural phenomena were happening at that time. If you think about, you, I know you don't have the plot in front of you, but if you look at opioid use over time, it spikes between 19... 
97 and 2000. And much of the spike is probably due to the change in survey techniques. And the, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration actually makes that clear that you should not compare those data as a time series, even though Kolodny presents those data without that asterisk. But all of that aside, even assume that this increase wasn't from the change in survey, I broke it down by the types of drugs recreational opioid users were using. And the vast majority of the opioids were not oxycodone, not oxycontin, not Percocet. It was codeine. Wow. And if you remember one, Sippin' on Syrup came out by 3-6 Mafia. And I know that's like a very wild thing to bring up, but like there was definitely a movement in Houston, Texas within the hip hop community where codeine was being consumed recreationally more often of that movement, which I'm against, of course. But I'm, I'm just saying this because it seems like a lot of the increase in, quote, prescription opioid consumption was attributed to oxycodone types of medications and pain reliever medications when it was actually disproportionately codeine at that time. So my co-author on the Reason study, Robert Capodalupo, we actually have a paper accepted by the Yale Law and Policy Review. And we've outlined these data in that in a comment in an article by Delfino, which was calling for increases in prosecution of doctors for opioid prescribing. So I'm very excited for that to come out because I think it'll add some perspective to the early 2000s and how for what happened in the early 2000s is absolutely ridiculous. I've actually had some people review this paper and come back to me and say, Hey, Purdue Pharma probably would have loved to see this paper when they were going through the litigation themselves, which I think is very interesting. I love that. So when do you think it might come out? Do you have an idea? They're a little bit slow. I'd expect that by next spring it will be released. That's amazing. I'm so excited to hear that because we get attacked anytime I say, you know, it's not all about Purdue because they're still blaming the deaths in 2022. So a 15-year-old kid could think they're buying Xanax and die from illicit fentanyl. And then you have Andrew Kaladi and, and his people saying, well, it's still because of Purdue and OxyContin. They're like obsessed. It's, it's wild because if you look at the number of prescriptions and what proportion of those prescriptions was distributed by Purdue, it basically tops out at like 4% of right. all oxycodone prescriptions were from Purdue. Right. And I don't say this to say that Purdue is not guilty of absolutely anything but the idea that they are responsible for the opioid crisis is insane. It's absolutely yes. false. Yeah, I agree. And I think one reason they were able to get this narrative out there was by sort of, I do think they manipulated parents because parents have grief. Obviously, I can't imagine what it's like to lose a child. And then you have so-called experts saying, well, if you help us fight Purdue, if you help us push this narrative against OxyContin and Purdue, even for parents who didn't lose their kids to any prescription medication, even if it was heroin or illicit fentanyl. And they're like, if you push this narrative, if you help us, then you'll save other parents and other kids from having to go through it. And I, I do think they've been manipulated. And I think their grief has been exploited. And I think it's actually kind of disgusting that they've done it because enough with Purdue. I mean, like you said, I'm not saying they didn't do anything wrong, but 
this is pharmaceutical companies. They do, they mislead. They, you know, they focus on the benefits and they, they, they don't focus on the harms and that's just what it's what they do. And so I'm not saying Purdue isn't guilty of anything, like you said, but they're not responsible for the deaths. Like the government talks about that. And then you have kids who've died from illicit fentanyl having nothing to do with the prescription and they don't even want to talk about it. Media doesn't even, they, they don't even really want to cover it that much. Yeah, it's difficult to get the media involved. I've had so many challenges with Jacob. I am familiar with sipping on some syrup. I don't know if <laughs> Bev is. That's by 3-6 Mafia, Bev. Just <laughs> So Jacob, I would be very interested in, I don't know if I could retain you, but when I work on legislation, I like to bring researchers in and, and physicians and everybody because I want to do my part with that the PDMP has caused. And if I can do it in Rhode Island, I would love to have you by my side. And I know other members would like to have you by their side. Can you, uh, you know, testify in different states? It would be an honor. I would love to collaborate. Just let me know when the opportunity presents itself and I'll be right there. Yeah, because we like to make it easy for our members to meet with their lawmakers. And, um, you know, I know Kate Nicholson and Beth Darnell. We love uh, them. Yeah, they've been very supportive. I know Kate supported my legislation as well as the ACLU. I, I think our time has come. I think so many people have been harmed by these draconian laws, by the PDMP. And, and Bev's forte is the research. My forte is getting in the state house and changing the system because that, that's what needs to happen. We have to stop the bleeding. And usually you effect that with either legislation or lawsuits unfortunately. Jacob, when your paper, that next paper comes out, would you be willing to come back on? Because I would love to have you talk about it. Oh, I'd love to talk about it. Yes, of course. Hey there, folks. Thanks for taking time to listen to this episode. I thank you, Jacob, for joining us. Jacob, how can people follow your work? Well, I'm on Twitter. You can follow me at Jacob James Rich. Just no spaces, all lowercase. Pretty easy to find me if you just Google Jacob James Rich too. Okay. And if somebody wanted to, if one of our physicians who's listening wants to shoot you an email, do they do this? Because it seems like you're a pretty busy guy. Yeah, my email is pretty easy to find, but I, I can say it here too. It's just jacob.rich at reason.org. And Excellent. if you Google me, it should pop up too. Excellent. I know there was a lot of information in this episode. This was part four in our Narcs Care PDMP series. And I'd like to end this episode with a quote from attorney Kate Nicholson. The tough thing about PDMPs is they straddle two spheres, law enforcement and clinical practice. There are many doctors and the CDC that see the ideal version of what a PDMP could do. But PDMPs are also tools for surveillance and oversight. They are aimed at identifying suspicious behavior, potential misuse, and diversion. So they're used to track and suppress the dispensing of controlled substances, which is a core enforcement policy goal of drug enforcement. So PDMPs, as one author has said, really blur the lines between healthcare and law enforcement. Thank you once again for listening to our podcast. If you're enjoying our podcast, Please follow us on Spotify, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and share with anyone that you think might benefit from this information. If you have any comments that you would like to leave us about this episode, as always, please reach out to us at bev at the doctorpatientforum.com or claudia at the doctorpatientforum.com. We look forward to bringing you the next episode of the Doctor Patient Forum podcast. 
Just a quick disclaimer that what you hear in our podcast is not to be considered medical or legal advice. We will always provide links in the show notes to give evidence for what we are saying.